Live from the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where Mormonism meets Biblical Christianity face-to-face. -face. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. I'm standing here with Casey, who is, I don't know if we can see it, Derek, can we, how can we show Casey's shirt? Casey's wearing an excellent shirt. It says Aggies for Christ here on her shirt, but you know what, when she turns around, check this out. Hey, what are you doing on Tuesday night? So, so, uh... When someone comes up here and says, I'm not doing anything, what do you say? Well, you want to go to a movie? No. What do you say? I want to go to Heart of the Matter. Yes, excellent, excellent. Thanks so much, Casey. Now, we are about to be privy to a very special musical number by Jocelyn, held by her uh, aunt, Kelsey. So, uh, Jocelyn, here you go. <laughs> God not that he saw you up, ring on the inside, warm up the wine. Yes! A star is born. Thank you so much. Bye. Tried to kiss her, she turned her face. All right, uh, we are, praise the true and living God for allowing us to be part of this ministry. We pray he will be with you and us tonight. There are a lot of great Bible teaching churches out there. Are you going to one? If you haven't found one, you're welcome to join us Sundays, 10 a.m., 2.30 p.m., up at the University of Utah. Go to www.campus.com for more information. That's campus with hyphens between the letters. AM 820, The Truth is a great Christian radio station here in Utah. I listen to them whenever I listen to... Uh, Christian Radio, uh, very good. Speaking of them, they are uh, have provided us with a tremendous giveaway tonight. Fantastic. A pair of tickets to the first seven households, a pair of tickets to the upcoming Michael Smith concert that is at the Draper Amphitheater, Amphitheater next Tuesday night. Michael W. Smith. Michael W. Smith next Tuesday night. Draper Amphitheater, two free tickets to the first seven households who call and request them. So uh, check that out. That is by virtue of AM820, The Truth, providing those tickets in partnership with us here at Aletheia Ministries. You can call now, 801-973-8820. First seven callers, first seven households are uh, two tickets, each household available. Thanks to AM820, The Truth. Listen up. Our annual... Uh, Burning Heart is coming up September 1st, a Saturday, our summer open water baptism. This year we're going to have a dunk tank and a uh, bounce house for kids, lots of food, products for sale. We are inviting all churches in the state to come and attend and join us for a non-denominational communion. We'll have worship, we'll have a communion time, and then we're going to go down to the river and do open water baptisms. Hopefully pastors who are there will uh, administer or hand, uh, give the communion out and just want to make it a non-denominational time to remember our Lord. Really looking forward to it. Music, food, fun, products, worship, communion, all culminating open water baptism. Saturday, September 1st, Murray Amphitheater from 3 to 9. Our summer sale spectacular is going on. And what does that mean? It means you get five great Aletheia Ministries products for the price of half. Uh, you will get a, a, a CD. This is called In His Words. We use this at campus. And what it is is uh, 17 verses 
of the, of the Word of God put to music, and that's what we use for our worship. You get a Mormon president. This uh, docudrama uh, talks about whether uh, a member of the Mormon church should be president or not, and how it stems all the way back to Joseph Smith, who ran for president of the United States. You get a copy of If My Kingdom Were of This World, Then My Servants Would Fight. You get a copy of I Was a Born Again Mormon. And you get a copy of Where Mormonism Meets Biblical Christianity Face-to-Face, an A to Z doctrinal comparative, 47 topics covered in this hardback book. All for 50 bucks. Now, between now and the end of August, if you want one of your very own free Joseph Smith bumper stickers, uh, then you order this right now and they will, we will send you one of these free in the package, uh, normal retail value for that bumper sticker, $79. Just kidding. Uh, but anyway, uh, if you want one of those, do the summer special and we'll send one in there with it. Well, our good friend, uh, Truckin' Buddy, he passed this on to me. On Sunday, July 18th, the Salt Lake Tribune ran a full page ad of this uh, advertisement color, beautiful ad, and uh, it, it, it's from a company that calls itself Cruise with the News, which is really a horrible name in my opinion, but in any way, what is Cruise with the News promoting? They're promoting, uh, it says Cruise with the News, listen, to the possible lands of the Book of Mormon. And uh, what you do is you go and you take a, a cruise and then they show you places that possibly could have been included in the Book of Mormon. Um, I think they ought to add this to everything the Mormon, churches, the Mormon Church does. Add the possibility clause. And so come to church and you can hear possibly the gospel. Or, uh, you know, pray to a possible anthropomorphic God. Or die and go to a possible celestial kingdom heaven. Uh, the whole thing should have po possibly possible, actually impossible before it. Uh, so I think it's just absolutely unreal. With that, let's have a moment in the Word. We left off last week in John chapter 10 where Jesus was speaking of other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them I must also bring. And he was talking about the Gentile nation. Tonight we come to another verse that's important in the Mormon Christian debate. And uh, it's found in the same chapter, verse 30. Here Jesus says to the Jews simply, John 10, 30, I and my Father are one. Period. Point blank. Done. Now the LDS who believe that Jesus and the Father are one in purpose you got to understand, do not take John 10.30 literally. In other words, they would read John 10.30 as saying, I and my Father are one in purpose. They would add that in. In fact, the Joseph Smith translation might even do it. But this is not what Jesus said. You go all the way back in the Old Testament to Deuteronomy chapter 6, the great Shema, verse 4, and it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Okay, in the Hebrew, this would read, Shema Yisrael Yahweh Elohim Echad El uh, Yahweh. Translated, that means, hear Israel, God, whose holy name is Yahweh, we don't even know how to pronounce it, our God is one God, whose holy name is Yahweh. That's how the, the, the Hebrew would read it. 
if it was transliterated. The LDS try and suggest that Elohim is the literal name, like my literal name is Sean, Elohim is the literal name of God the Father, and when that is just a title for God, whether it's in heaven or a God here on earth, um, and that Jesus' real name is Jehovah, actually pronounced Jehovah. But Deuteronomy proves that Jehovah is only, is one God's name. God's name is Jehovah. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Jehovah. Uh, and not, uh, not in purpose, not in spirit, one. And when it came time, Jesus, God, condescended below all things and took on a body of flesh. And uh, prior to this, he was not called the Son in the Old Testament. Prior to this, we do not have a father identity in the Old Testament. All we had was Yahweh. That's all we had, and that is his name. Jews are not polytheistic. Even Muslims are not polytheistic uh, or Christians. Only pagans are polytheistic. Then Jesus, after he said, I and my father are one, what do you think happened? Verse 31, it says, Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Uh, was this a lawful reaction for the Jews to take for, to a, from a man, they thought, saying, I and my father are one? Why would that upset them so much? Well, it upset them because in Leviticus 24, 16, it says, And he that blasphemeth the name of YHWH shall surely be put to death. And all the congregation shall surely stone him, as well as a stranger, as he that is born in the land. When he blasphemeth the name of YHWH shall be put to death. When the Jews heard Jesus literally call himself God by saying, I and the Father are one, they knew what that meant because the great Shema in Deuteronomy says, the Lord is one. It's just one. So he says, the Father and me, we are one. I am God. And it was too much for them. Here, O Latter-day Saints, Yahweh, our God, is one God, not two, not three, not an eternal number or regression of gods, just one. And with that, let's have a word of prayer. Father God, who is one? We thank you for life and we pray you'll be with us tonight as we discuss the second part of last week's show. We pray that uh, we will be able to reach people who are seeking for truth, who want to know you, the true and living God. We pray for those who are in operations and volunteering and staff and audience members, wherever they may be. In Jesus' holy name we pray, amen. One of the distinct features of biblical Christianity, which the Bible makes perfectly clear, is money, wealth, and the things of this world are not held in very high esteem, with money typically not being the reward for following Jesus. Unlike the children of Israel, who under the law were subject to uh, elements of what some people today call uh, prosperity teachings, that means that if you live obediently, you will give blessings. If you live disobediently, you will receive curses. That's the Old Testament prosperity teachings. Um, Generally speaking, Christians are, when they follow Christ, are subject to difficulty, suffering, rejection, and in fact, opposite of worldly wealth. Jesus modeled the Christian walk and lifestyle for us in that he, when he was born, he was born in an animal manger. And uh, he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as the son of man, he said, I have no place to rest my head, all the way up until the time where they took him and crucified him on a cross. John tells us in 1 John 2, 16, which is one of my favorites in the Mormon Christian debate, for all that is in the world, 
The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of this world. When a rich man walked away from the Lord's invitation to follow him uh, and to give up the things of the world, Jesus turned and said in Matthew 19, 23, A rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. And again I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6, 6-11, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be content therewith. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some covet after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and meekness. In explaining the parable of the sower, Jesus said in Matthew 13, 22, he also that receives seed among the thorns is he that hears the word, and the care of this world and the deceitfulness of riches chokes the word and he becomes unfruitful. The Greeks took the word from the Chaldee for money and worldly wealth and it was called mammonas. And in Matthew 6:24, Jesus made it clear saying, no man can serve two masters for he will either hate the one and love the other or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Listen, you cannot serve God and Mammonus or Mammon. He also said in Luke 6:24, But woe unto you that are rich, for you have received your consolation. So being rich and wealthy in and of itself is no sin. God uh, can bless people and has blessed very good Christian people with uh, wealth. But it can't engulf your priorities. It can't become the, the sole reason that you exist. Interestingly, Scripture leads... Uh, us to an interesting insight on how to handle wealth by talking to us about Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 8, 9, it says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. Here Paul is telling us that Christ, who was rich in heavenly glory, made himself poor on our behalf by coming to this earth and taking on our sin, and that we, through his poverty, may become rich in heavenly glory. I think this might be a model uh, from the king on how those blessed with certain gifts give abundantly to it, become poor in those gifts, thereby making others rich and not just living for themselves. Paul counsels believers who have been blessed with money and wealth, saying in 1 Timothy 6, 17, Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. So there's a thumbnail sketch of how the Bible presents riches in this economy of grace by and through Jesus Christ. Most of us recognize when we meet up with somebody who has uh, wealth but is humble and giving, we recognize that they don't make their status the thing that comes in front of them. They just use it to help other people. But also we know when we are face to face with people and institutions that trust in uncertain riches with pride and make it their focus and aim. Last week we aired a program we called The Mormon Way Politics. Tonight we want to present you with the second and final segment of this, The Mormon Way, and we are calling it Mormon Money. 
Now, I'm going to borrow heavily from an article published in Bloomberg Business Week magazine. It came out last week. I thank many of you who forwarded it on to us. Throughout the course of our ministry, people uh, will often say, what do you think is the reason so many people stay in the LDS church um, who, with all of its problems and all of its history, why do they stay? After being LDS for 40 years and making a concerted study of it for 25, it is my opinion that when everything is said and done, the core driving force behind m the most faithful LDS people is pride. The pride of life, which comes by way of them being members of the only true church of the face of the earth having been so valiant that they accepted and are faithful to the only true church for their ascetic lives of living above others and for their wholesome and clean-cut appearance. Uh, pride of accomplishment, which is, includes having large, well-behaved families, educated, successful careers, elevated titles, and respected social status. And ultimately, there's the pride of a self-indulgent hereafter, which includes being married for eternity, having your children with you for eternity, and the coup de grace of all arrogance and pride, becoming a god after this life, and being able to produce your own planets, etc. So where the Bible clearly states that all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of this world, Mormonism is literally built upon these very things. Where does the attitude come from? with the LDS people, the founder. 88 of Joseph Smith's 112 revelations dealt with money, with material economic matters. D. Uh, Michael Quinn, LDS historian said, quote, the Mormon church is very different than any other church. Traditional Christianity and Judaism make a clear distinction between what is spiritual and what is temporal. While Mormon theology specifically denies that there is such a distinction. In the Mormon worldview, it's as spiritual to give alms to the poor, as the old uh, phrase goes in the biblical sense, as it is to make a million dollars, equally as spiritual. In and of itself, this attitude ought to let any Christian see a major difference between how Christians view the world and this life and how Mormons do. Founder Joseph Smith had God say in one of his early revelations, Verily I say unto you that all things are unto me spiritual, and not at any time have I given you a law which is temporal. Quinn interprets this revelation as saying, quote, whether it's investing in a merchandising store, a tannery, a lumber mill, a hotel, or a bank, all of which occurred under Joseph Smith's leadership, according to that 1830 revelation, it's all spiritual. Everything is spiritual. So when your bishop comes to you and says, hey, I want you to help support this, this uh, store that's opening up down on the court, that's a spiritual revelation. That's not a secular thing. That's not a temporal thing. When you have someone say, the Lord tells me that you should do this, that's a spiritual thing. That's, that has nothing to do with money of this world. And so everything to them is spiritual. From the seed of holy materialism springs the ethos and the ethics and the focus and the priorities of Mormonism today. To be active in Mormonism and wealthy is an indication that you are blessed. You are one of the elect and in harmony with the will of God Almighty, the ultimate capitalist. This idea is strongly emphasized in their Book of Mormon. Conversely, to be failing in economic success 
is often considered an indicator that the Latter-day Saint is out of favor with God, experiencing trials necessary for their growth because they're, they're weak, and worst of all, that the individual is unworthy, that they deserve this plight of poverty and struggling upon their back. As a result, both members of the LDS Church and the Church itself strives ardently to obtain money and wealth. I'm fascinated as I drive along the I-15 along the Wasatch Mountains and I look up at the foothills of these LDS communities and Bountiful and these other places, these opulent mansions that are resting in the foothills and, and, and how they're put up there as, at the base there to show that we have you know, been blessed by God because we're righteous and we're more worthy than those who are in the valley down closer to the freeway. Now, uh, let me make something really clear here and I make this from my own observations. Wealth and worldly success are not in and of themselves honored in Mormonism. They don't respect those who are wealthy outside of the church. These things are only recognized as admirable in their members, especially in the members who are very active and participative in Mormonism. Let me tell you, if you want to be hailed as all that in this life and treated with extra respect and given a little extra leeway that some of the Joe Blow members don't get, become wealthy and be active in the Mormon church. The youth idolize such families, feed their egos with all kinds of uh, appellations of, hey, you're so brother, so-and-so, brother, so-and-so, and they're held up. You want a really good picture of what an LDS family prototype looks like, watch any of the Twilight movies written by LDS author Stephanie Meyer and observe how she depicts and portrays the Cullen family, who are vampires in the movie. Good vampires, but vampires nonetheless. They are so loving, they are so welcoming, so clean cut, so beautiful and, 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 and attractive and cohesive and uh, wealthy and they live in luxurious homes and they're just slightly above the masses. They're so cool, but they're good too. This Stephanie Myers has put the prototypical ideal of Mormon families right there in these films and the scripts that she wrote for them. Walk into any LDS ward today and you're sure to find at least one Cullen family. So it's difficult to put too much blame on the LDS because their church itself focuses on money. And this was the focus of the Bloomberg article, uh, the money side of Mormonism. It's astounding. Let me try to break it down for you uh, in the next few minutes. The Mormon church has a for-profit side of business and a not-for-profit side of business. The for-profit side are vast, generating billions of dollars of revenue for the worldly church. Because of time, I'm not going to list the businesses, but they're in publication, radio, television, digital media, and a large insurance company which generates billions of dollars for it every year. Just the insurance company. These for-profit businesses also include ranches, hunting reserves, citrus groves, timber operations in the US, Brazil, Argentina, Canada, Mexico, Britain, and Australia. The Australian operation alone brings in, back in 1996, $276 million in annual sales. Just the Australia operation. Then their for-profit real estate holdings, commercial and residential, include malls, sewer infrastructure and water treatment plants. In Hawaii, the Mormon church owns 7,000 acres of Hawaii premium property all alone. Now, in the nonprofit 
businesses. That means they don't pay taxes on the revenues that are generated in their nonprofit business. They own the Polynesian Cultural Center, sitting on 42 acres of prime Hawaii real estate on the north shore of Oahu. In 2010, this center had net assets of 70 million. They collected 23 million in ticket sales and 36 million in donations alone. Just this one thing. In 1960, the Mormon church stopped reporting any of its finances. Today, the church is estimated as having a value of $40 billion with an annual income of $8 billion a year. Now, I want to point something out to you. We don't understand millions and billions very well. To spend a million dollars, you would have to, in one year, you would have to spend $2,739 a day. $2,739 a day to spend $1 million. To spend a billion dollars, you would have to spend every day of the year $2,739,726. That's to spend a billion. They bring in $8 billion in revenue a year. That means they could spend $16 million a day and they are going to be fine with just the revenue they have, not uh, to mention their assets. Like an inner city drug ring, the church, uh, the church members always say, well, we have a lay clergy that only works at the, uh, at the lowest level down there in the city where the guys are doing that. That's the lay clergy. But up at the top, let me tell you, they have always made money. Don't believe me? Go to www.zaba, Z-A-B-A search.com, Zaba search. Type in the state Utah. Type in the name Boyd K. Packer, LDS Apostle. Why? He has only worked for the church as a seminary teacher his whole life. He's apostle. Type in Zeba search and look at his home. Ask yourself, how does a man in lay clergy who simply teaches seminary own a palatial mansion like the one you're going to see? You see, really in Mormonism, it is all about the things of this world. Let me explain to you how they do it. The Mormon prophet who is, interestingly, the sole owner of all assets the Mormon church possesses during his tenure as the prophet, determines that a temple is needed in a certain area. The location is announced. All the Mormons, they just get overjoyed with the fact that a new temple is coming, and the ball gets rolling. So while the new temple is being built, then a lot of promotion is done to let the neighbors and everybody know a new Mormon temple is there. That helps with missionary work. Part of the campaign is to get the community to know about the new Mormon temple. Uh, but the rest, the other thing that all the wards and stakes are doing around that area is all of their leaders are getting their members temple ready. You know what that means? It means they go to everybody in their wards and stakes who does not or has never been through the temple and they say, we want you to get temple ready. And that means paying 10% of tithing. And that means that if you haven't been going to the temple, we want you to start paying again. And so what happens is, is um, as the Mormon church puts up much, much less dollars to build these temples now, they're dumbed down, they're small, the return on investment is so great because they only pay a certain amount to erect these small temples, but they get the whole church reinvigorated to start paying tithing. And it's a beautiful business model, you know, and so, and that's how they keep that flow going. Then once those new temple attendees get in the temple, they swear that they will give all that they have and all that they will have to the building up of the Mormon church. So tithing was just a little minimum. 
to get in there. Once they get in there, they are put under covenant to promise to give all that they have and will have to the building up of the church. And it seals a great deal. The temple building is only one of the ploy they use to increase revenues. They also place heavy uh, emphasis on volunteerism, which falls on the backs of their members, intimating that the more a member does, the more that member is going to be loved of the Lord, and uh, the better chance they will have to be with their family and spouses for eternity. Sherry Dew, CEO of Deseret Book, expressed in the Bloomberg article what it's like to have to report to the prophet when you're over one of the companies of the church. She said, there's nothing like, there's like nothing worse on the planet than to go to your owner and say, uh, we didn't do what we told you we would do. Especially because one of the interesting things we deal with is the owner is also an ecclesiastical leader whom we revere. She continues saying that's the toughest thing about an organization that's owned by a church because you don't want to disappoint them and you don't want to have them worry about what you're doing because they have better things to worry about. What better things do they have to worry about, Sister Do? The Mormon prophet and the apostles, what do they have to worry about more than the bottom line? Certainly it can't be receiving revelation because they haven't done that for 30 years. And certainly it can't be distributing their vast wealth to the world, suffering world. According to an official LDS welfare services fact sheet, the Mormon church gave $1.3 billion in humanitarian aid in 178 countries between 1985 and 2010. Sounds like a lot, 25 year period of time. Less than a third of that money was in actual cash. The rest of it was in services rendered and in products. So it looked like about 400 million in cash, but let's just say it was $1.3 billion in that 25 years. That works out to 0.07 of 1% of the annual income the church brings in. Just to put it in perspective, the United Methodists give 29% of the annual revenues they get out to the humanitarian world. The LDS Church, 0.07%. Okay? Uh, Mormonism, Christian, or a business? In March of this year, we'll wrap it up, the prophet, seer, and revelator of the Mormon Church, Thomas Monson, stood with the 12 uh, apostles uh, at the opening of their... $5.3 billion shopping mall. The LDS say these men are prophets like unto Moses, apostles like unto Peter, Paul, James, and John. Do you know what LDS prophet Thomas Monson to the rescue said before cutting the opening ribbon to that mall? The prophet cheered, one, two, three, let's go shopping! And slipped the ribbon. Like unto Moses... Like unto Peter, like hell. It is a business conglomerate out for money. We're going to open up the phone lines, 801-973-8820, 801-973-TV20. Uh, First-time callers, please. LDS callers, if possible, turn down your TV sets. Remember, we're giving away tickets to Michael, Smith, Michael W. Smith's concert. And uh, first seven households get two tickets. They're gone. Don't call anymore about those. They're gone. Our ability to remain on the air and open shopping malls is directly related to you and your support. You know, in light of our topic tonight, I thought I would add maybe a musical number. It's touched me so. It's a number I learned while LDS. I'm going to give it my best. We thank thee, O oh God, for a promise. 
days. We thank you for saying yes to riches, but no to coffee, tea, and gays. We thank you for money, money, money. We know that our present apostles will deliver the cash on demand and keep us in fine clothes. We thank the old God for our prophet. All right, we're going to Tim. <laughs> you gotta try your best, baby. We're going to Tim. No clapping, please. Uh, Tim in Provo. He's LDS. Tim, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, how's it going? I'm doing very well. How are you doing? Great. So what's up? Um, I actually spoke to you a couple days ago. I don't know if you remember, um, but I'm a student here at BYU. And I actually wanted to address um, what you said in the beginning of your show um, about the initial statement of why, you know, members that, that receive a knowledge of unethical behavior, you know, in the history of the church, why wouldn't they leave? You know, even with uh, the vast amount of, of knowledge, you know, that they, that they obtain of, you know, of sketchy church history, um, and so, you know, what was said is that they, they were too prideful. Um, I think, uh, I don't think most members are necessarily too haughty or prideful to leave the church, um, but are more afraid of the social consequences of their decision. Okay. Uh, you know, for example, a student at BYU that dissents would, would not only be expelled, but would undoubtedly lose his friends and, and become a social outcast. And what, what's the, uh, if you become a social outcast, what is that dinging in your personality? That's definitely pride. Yeah, and it will all come down to pride when you really uh, think through. And I realize that there are a lot of uh, variations to the, comp, to the argument. And, you know, you say, well, you know, there's, they don't know what they'll do and things. But bottom line, I really do believe, after having really looked at it, it is pride. It's a pride of losing the friends. It's a pride of, of, of people looking down on them. It's a pride of them not looking like they could keep up. It's, it's, it's a pride of wanting to, your family to look like it's cohesive. It's bottom line in it, it's pride. Because people who are humble, when they're humble and they're broken by the truth, they are, uh, they are looking to the Lord. And they say, I don't care what the fallout's going to be. I know what is truth here. And they're humble people when they come out. But the ones who stay in, there's elements of pride there that keep them in. They're going to they're gonna answer for that. They're going to answer for that pride. Yeah, you know, and, and that I do, you know, completely believe. Um, you know, shunning is, is all too real in the LDS church. Um, I, I guess my, more of my, my point was that, um, you know, myself with, with all the questions and, and doubts that, that I have, um, I, w I wouldn't say it's more, I mean, yeah, there's definitely definite pride in that, you know, I don't want to be, you know, an outcast or lose my friends or family, but I think it's more of, um, you know, it's, it's a life change and what do you do? You know, what are going to be the consequences of that? And so I, you might go into poverty, you might lose your job, you might lose your family. Yeah. It's pride. 
because they don't want to lose those things. It's all that's in the world. It's the, it's the pride of life. And so they cling to those things over going to the truth. I, I understand your point, my friend, uh, but I, I will differ with you. And maybe you and I could sit down someday there at the Cougar Eat and have a discussion about it. <laughs> no, I mean, it's definitely true. I mean, you know, I think there are many members out there that, that aren't going to leave the church because, you know, they aren't, they're too prideful to admit to their, their friends or family that, that they were living a lie, you know, that it, that, you know, everything that they, you know, when they said to their, to their neighbors and to their friends, well, I know this is true and, and, you know, we're judgmental of their belief. Yeah, you know, they're definitely going to be too prideful to, you know, admit their wrongs. Yeah. So. Hey, great call, Tim. Thanks so much. Hey, have a good one. God bless. Bye-bye. Uh, Steve C. writes, if Joseph Smith was a true prophet of God and knew that the name of Jesus Christ had to be in the name of God's true restored church, why did he originally call the church the Church of Christ, omitting the name Jesus? And if he realized that he had made a mistake, why did he change the name to the Church of God, omitting the name of Jesus Christ altogether? And if he realized that, he, that that too was wrong, why did he change the name of the church to the Church of the Latter-day Saints, again omitting the name of Jesus Christ, only to go forth on the fourth round to finally get it correct? Why, if he was a true prophet of God, did these mistakes occur? It's a great question. You might ask yourself that when you, especially missionaries, when you boast that the true church has to have the name of Jesus Christ in the title. We're going to Alex in Raleigh, North Carolina. Alex, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, Sean, what's up? How you doing? You're on the air, man. How you doing? Good. Um, all right. I wanted to ask you about two quick things. Um, first is, I'm dating this girl, and... Uh, Unfortunately, she is LDS, and uh, she, she was, long story short, we were driving in the car, and uh, her sisters and brothers were in the back, and um, this guy almost hit her, and she cussed, and the, the sisters and brothers told um, the, the dad, and we get called up, he, the dad calls me up there with her, and um, he, he gives me this piece of paper, and it has, uh, it, it was real, it seemed kind of sketchy, he's got like this piece of paper, and it's got language at the top with the... Uh, 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 like a one Bible verse and uh, no like URL at the bottom of the page and um, I just want to see what you thought of it. It real quick just talks about how you need to use respectful language when um, addressing your peers and uh, you know and also to God and uh, Jesus Christ. And the Bible verse the references is the Lord's Prayer, which is Matthew six, you know nine verse uh, verse nine to twelve. And I just wanted to get your take on whether that was deceptive or not, considering the fact that there is a unbelievable scripture in James 3 that, you know, has great metaphors, uh, you know, talking about how the tongue that you use to worship God isn't the same as, um, you know, how you should talk peer-to-peer you know, -peer and stuff like that. Does anybody know what he said? You know what? We, I, I hate to have you go through all of that, Alex. We're having a phone problem. I'm so sorry. Do me a favor. Uh, as soon as we get this technicality figured out, uh, we'll come back. Summarize it a little bit uh, quicker if you can, and then we'll try to answer it. So hang on for one second. All right. Thanks. All right. While they're fixing that, uh, I was at a Carl's Jr. the other day, and a man asked me, listen, I saw your show on uh, politics. Um, what 
do you uh, suggest that Christians do? I mean, you know, do you vote for this? Do you vote for that? Again, this is not a, a statement on political candidates at all. I don't care. Um, and I think that uh, maybe the uh, answer would be, in my opinion, that every Christian in America goes to the voting booth and uh, they vote on those issues that are important to them. And when it comes to uh, the office of the President of the United States, they write in Jesus. And, uh, and then they follow him. And uh, you don't make a decision between two evils, which people always say, well, it's a lesser of two evils. No, it's not. They're both evil or whatever, whoever, whatever it is running, evil. So it's getting to a point now where Christians, you know, we've never really had any uh, uh, thing in politics. Jesus was not political. Our king was not. He was apolitical. And yet, for some reason, Christians believe they should be. But in any case, uh, what you're going to do, I couldn't tell you, but I know what I would suggest, and that's go and write Jesus Christ's name in the box and then follow uh, him. Okay, we are going to try Alan in Salt Lake City. Uh, here we go. Alan, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, John, hi, how are you? I bet you don't remember me. I'm a, I met you once in Ross Park Laundry. But mostly, I've been watching your show here and there. My questions are this, you know. Uh, I went to the temple once, and they showed me a movie about Jesus Christ uh, being in South America after he died. I was wondering if that's true or not. That's absolute fiction. It's total fiction. Uh, and we can base that fiction on a number of accounts. God does not have us believe things in a vacuum. He didn't produce the Bible up in heaven and throw it down and have it land in the desert and us pick it up and use it. He had it written by and through men uh, who were alive in real historical places during real periods of time. And those writings were compiled and proven by historical and archaeological and and all kinds of different evidences, linguistic evidences, and, and genetic and DNA evidences, and science, and all those things coalesce into supporting the Bible. The Book of Mormon claims have nothing to support them. It was written in a vacuum, just like any good piece of fiction. And what Joseph did was he took the idea of Jesus' resurrection as the kind of the apex of the whole story, and he incorporated it into his Book of Mormon uh, tale, and, but it's, it's pure fiction. Now, they will, they will pull from all sorts of places, Quetzalcoatl and all these things to say, yeah, we think he did. But in terms of the Book of Mormon account, pure fiction. Hey, thank you very much for that answer because I was looking for that for a couple of months. But, hey, I appreciate your answer. Hey, I want to keep watching your show, and uh, I maybe visit you once um, see you in person. Thank you very much. And, uh, thank you, my friend. God bless you. Thank you. You too, man. Thanks. Bye-bye. In terms of a, a Latter-day Saint being uh, in office, electing an active Mormon is not anything like electing any one of another faith. Let me tell you why. It is because of the temple rights. Uh, usually, someone who's reached the level to be able to run for a high office like President of the United States has gone through their temple. And in their temple, they raise their arm to the square, and in front of God, angels, and witnesses, they think... They swear to give all that they have, like we said earlier, and all that they will have. That includes the office they will be elected to. Did you hear me? It includes the office they will be elected to, to the building up of the Mormon church. They make that oath. They swear that oath before God, angels, and witnesses in the temple. Now, 
If somebody who's running for an office like the President of the United States, who's a Mormon, who's been through the temple, says, the Mormon church will have no weight at all on my office here, they are either lying to the public or they are lying to God whose oath they made in the temple. Because to God in the temple, they swore they would do all they can to build up Mormonism. But to the general public, if they say no, Mormon church doesn't have any effect upon me, one way or another, they are proven a liar. Okay? Now, if, uh, if a Latter-day Saint is running for the President of the United States and they say, does the Mormon church have any effect on you? And he says, absolutely. I listen to the prophet. I put my Mormon church first. I build it up first before anything else. That I could respect. Wouldn't vote for him, but I could respect it. But in other case, in any other way, you're going to hear lies. Okay, uh, let's check some more emails out. Uh, we have someone who wrote and said... Uh, many Catholics probably do pray to Mary, but praying to Mary is not part of Catholic doctrine. Asking Mary, he says, to pray for us is part of the Catholic religion. Many Catholics don't even know Catholic doctrine like Mormons don't know theirs. So the question I have is, you're not praying to her, but you're asking her to pray for you. How do you do that? Do you say, Mary? And is that, is that a prayer? I mean, so either way, it really amounts to the same thing. Don't you see? So whether it's doctrine to pray to her or not, you say it's not. I don't know Catholicism. But, uh, you know, uh, I, I got to tell you, I think all of it turns out to be praying to a deceased person, which I think is anathema to God. Uh, my name is Mike, and I've been married to a Mormon for 20 years this month. I was raised a Baptist, accepted the Lord when I was young. My wife and I have five great kids, uh, one of which was saved last year. Uh, I was backslidden for years, but have recently rededicated my life. While being married to my wife has been the greatest joy, it has also been a great sense of pain. I have studied Mormonism for 22 years and know all of the apologetics. None of it works on my wife. She follows that religion with all of her heart. Nothing short of a miracle from God will change her mind and heart. Since you came out of Mormonism, what is your advice for me and what can I do to reach my wife? You're in a really tough position. So the first thing I want to say is to the audience, people who are dating Latter-day Saints who are Christian and think that things will change. Mostly, most cases don't. Every now and then someone says it happens. If the Lord leads you to, to marry one, really, truly, and he, th then what can I say? But it's not real wise to marry or date a Latter-day Saint because they believe you will come to their side. And they are far more indoctrinated into uh, this idea than you are. And so we receive, the most emails we receive are from people who are in marriages or relationships. They've been dating somebody. They love them. They're LDS. And the, and the impasse between them is religion. And it's really ugly. And that's why the Lord warns us in the Bible not to be unequally yoked. To marry somebody of a like believer, date people. You marry who you date. Date people who are like-minded. Don't go, uh, you know, marry a, a believer. Girls, marry a good believing man. Don't go marrying, don't go dating some Mormon guy because he has good morals. He still worships a false god. So, you know, make some good decisions. Now, for the couples, you're married. You know, all I can say is love as Christ loves. It's the best way. Uh, all the information and stuff, that works with some couples. 
But love and be a Christ to your wife. Serve her more. Uh, humbly be there for her. Uh, support your children who go to the LDS church with her. Support her. Go with her to the church or whatever. Support her, but love her. And that will come through, I believe, in the long run. It did for us. All right, let's try uh, Alex again in North Carolina. Alex, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, can you hear me? Yeah, much better. Okay, can you summarize it kind of quickly, Alex? All right, all right. Um, I'm dating this girl. Um, she accidentally slips the cuss word in front of her uh, little siblings, and the dad calls me and her up while I'm at her house. And um, I still don't understand. Both these two pieces of paper, and it's kind of sketchy. It has, like, no URL at the bottom to signify where it came from, which I was just uh, came from the LDS site. And it talks about how you need to, like, speak respectfully to uh, your peers, uh, as well as to God and Jesus Christ. And the scripture used was Matthew 6, 9 through 12, um, which was the Lord's Prayer. And I wanted to see, first of all, whether you think it's deceptive or not, because there's a really good uh, scripture in James 3 talking about taming the tongue, where it has, you know, incredible metaphors and stuff, and... You know, I just want to see what you thought about that. I don't. I have no idea why that guy would quote to you. It sounds like a misquote. First of all, the LDS rarely pay any attention to the Lord's Prayer, unless they might read it in their Bible uh, when they're going through the Bible, but they don't pay attention to that. So they don't recite it. They don't know it. You can ask a Mormon, "Give me the Lord's Prayer." They give you a little bit. Of, so I have no idea why he would do that. Well, yeah, and I just figured like he was, you know, because I'm not an LDS and. You know, them being an LDS family, I thought he was kind of being deceptive, deceptive, you know, showing me a paper that has a Bible verse, you know, oh, you know, we, we read from the Bible and stuff. And probably, probably. Relevant. And, uh, and real quick, second of all, I was just getting to a little uh, kind of, uh, you know, stupid conversation with uh, my girlfriend about this uh, idea of eternal marriage. And, uh, you know, I went on Sandra Tanner's site and... Um, read, you know, the verse in I, uh, Isaiah, and she, she pulled this verse from, like, Matthew uh, 16, verse 19, talking about how whatever you're bounded um, here on earth, you'll be bound to in heaven, and that was the big, you know, justification behind how eternal marriage is true. Yeah, it's such baloney. First of all, the apostles who Jesus gave that power to, who were witnesses of his resurrection, they didn't bind any marriages when they were walking around, so we know it wasn't talking about that. Totally taken out of context by the LDS missionaries. And uh, they use that as a proof text, uh, selected specifically to support their claims, but has nothing to do with the context. Uh, Jesus said, those who marry and are given in marriage are of this world. He said that uh, we are not given in marriage after this life, in resurrection. We are as the angels of heaven. So all their stuff is refuted by the Lord himself when it comes to marriage. Uh, just open up the word and talk to her about that, my friend, Alex. Thanks so much for calling. All right, cool. See you later, man. Thanks. Bye-bye. The caller saw a sticker that said the Mormon Church, a nonprofit organization, and the word profit is P-R-O-P-H-E-T. <laughs> oh, the bumper sticker craze is going on. Let's go to Scott in West Jordan. Scott, you're on Heart of the Matter. Yeah, I have a question. Yeah. Um... Why do you keep uh, addition on the church for building a $5 billion mall? Uh, if you think about it, uh, would you rather take your family to a ghetto downtown? Was that the option? A mall or a ghetto? 
what do you expect them to build? All, all their temples are beautiful. Their grounds are beautiful. Oh, Africans starving, uh, Indians, China, billion people suffering, huts for people to live in in Mexico. I mean, what, are you really trying to tell me that that is the most logical and important thing that they could do? A five oh. billion dollar mall? No, I, I just, uh, it goes back to your credibility, and, and you talked about Boyd Cage. Wait, 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 my credibility or their credibility? Yours. Have Why you, mine? Boyd, have you seen Boyd K. Packer's house? Yeah, I have. You have? Yeah. And it's, it's a, you call that a mansion? It's a mansion. Well, there you're wrong, pal, because I live up there, and it's relatively small. Okay, wait a second. Are we talking about the and, same house, buddy? And, and that goes back to your credibility. You no, wait, no, wait, no, wait. I've seen the house. What are you talking about? Well, you obviously maybe were you've seen one. Maybe you've seen one of his houses. And maybe I've seen another. But I've seen a house that is probably about at least 10,000 square feet, if not 12. Where does he live? Well, I don't have that with me now, but go on Zabus. I know where he lives because you didn't go to his house. Well, I didn't go to that house, but I know Boyd K. Packer owns another house. And if you don't want to do Boyd K. Packer, go to Irene's house or go to their holdings. Go to Monson's holdings. I mean, forget it, dude. You think that these guys are poor? And what's your point? My point is they lay out this idea that they are, uh, that they are, Lay clergy. Packer cut his teeth on, on the church coffers, and yet he can, I'm, I'm sure the guy has a net worth in the millions. I would bet my left hand on that. Okay? Would so, lose your left hand. Uh, would you rather them live in tents? What's your point? Yeah, my point is that anything that's of this world, how could an apostle who calls himself an apostle or prophet live in opulence? How could they build a $5 billion mall? How could they cut the ribbon and say, let's go shopping? What, I mean, could you hear Jesus doing that, you idiot? Could you hear the apostles, Peter, being about uh, consumerism and, and merchandising? Give me a break. Are you, so, are you so removed in your mind that you don't get the point? This, this, this kingdom is this kingdom that the Mormon church is built upon is a kingdom of this world. Don't you get it? Let's go for a ride someday. I'll show you the true house of Boyd K. Packer. I don't think I would get in a car with you. But nevertheless, uh, I think you're getting my point. Uh, Are you trying to tell me that Boyd K. Packer is a man who uh, still lives off the meager income that somebody in the church educational system would have? Absolutely yeah, not. You, absolutely not is right. Yeah, so then what is your point? Castle? Does he have a castle and... Okay, I didn't say castle, I said mansion. 10,000 square feet to me is a mansion. Now, maybe, maybe I used the wrong word. It's an, a luxurious piece of real estate that he owns. Just start telling the truth and maybe people... You know, give me something else that you think I don't tell the truth on, buddy, like doctrine. <laughs> Hello? Doctrine? We're talking about money tonight. I'm going to make comparisons tonight about money. And so that's what I've done. And I think I've proven it. And it's wrong. It's totally correct. 
It's totally crazy. But Boyd K. Packer, let's say I made the mistake. If I did, I would apologize. But the Mormon church is still about money, you see. And that's the real point, you see. And you're trying to kind of get around that. But bottom line, that is the real point. You get it? I get it. Sean, I'll see you in the opera. You're a great singer, man. Thank you. Come to my show. I'll be here all week. All right, listen. Uh, out of time. Kind of a iffy program tonight. The singing <laughs> didn't do too much. But we keep trying. Listen, you can know the Lord. Go to him. Say, I want to know the truth about this deal. Is this Mormon church real? Lord, open my eyes. Trust him. He'll show you the way. See you next week here on Heart of the Matter.